Once again, it's good to be sharing God's word with you. So if you turn with me to John chapter 8, we'll read through a portion of uh, the same passage that uh, Brother Paul read for us this morning. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, we'll read to begin this, um, this sermon. And this sermon is a continuation of uh, a series that we now have, um, which is on its fourth sermon. Um, so I pray you've been blessed by it. I'll give you a bit of a recap uh, in this sermon of what we've done so far. So if you're here for the first time, um, uh, this is about righteous judgment and what we are called to do in terms of judging. Okay? John chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll see what he has for us today. Father, we thank you once again for your amazing love for us and the grace that you bestow upon us each and every day. Father, we pray that you would grant us your grace even now as we look into your word. Grant us your wisdom and your understanding, Lord, that we may take what we hear from your word, take it into our hearts and it might produce fruit for you. Father, we pray for the work of your spirit within our hearts as well, Lord, teaching us your ways, opening up our eyes to the truth, revealing those things that are necessary for us to walk more perfectly for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, let me see if I can paint a picture for you. So Jesus has gone into the temple early in the morning and he's in the outer court and, and it's a vast, vast area and he seated himself down in one corner or one section of it and people who had heard about him and maybe who had begun to follow him or were thinking about him, were flocking around him in the temple area. Now, he wouldn't have been the only person in the temple. There would have been other people. But Jesus is teaching there and he says he sat down to teach, which means that other people were sitting down listening to what he was about to say. And Jesus is preaching and teaching in pretty hostile, in a hostile environment. Because the people who ran the temple, the leaders of the particular day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, and all those people had already taken a dislike to him because he was going around saying stuff that was irking them up. Okay, So he pointed out a number of their hypocrisies and he was teaching stuff that they thought was opposed to what they were teaching. And so they're keeping a very close eye on him. And at this particular point or by this stage, they were looking for reasons and looking for ways to try to get rid of him, try to discredit him, try to, try to cause him to do something wrong or say something wrong so that these people who were growing around him would see that he was a fake. Okay, So that's their main goal, to try and get rid of Jesus. So he's in the middle of a temple and it says that, in the middle of his teaching session, so I can just imagine this for a moment, that in the middle of this particular time, when I'm sharing the word of God with you, a number of men open up the door at the back of the church and drag in a woman and throw her down here at the front of the church and seek for an answer from me as to what should be done with her. 
in the middle of a sermon. Now, apart from it being outrageous, apart from being very disrespectful because he was teaching, there was a particular reason they had done it. Can you imagine that sort of thing happening now in the middle of us? Was it the right way to do things? No way. There was not, it was not meant ever to be done like that. They had apparently caught, this is what they said, they had caught this woman in the act, in the middle of the act of adultery, which begs the question, it takes two to tango. So where's the other one? Because the actual, because the actual other guy was just as guilty. The law of God does not condemn just the woman. It doesn't just con- condemn one of the parties, it condemns both. Because if adultery is, is, uh, is, is made or is done, then both people are guilty of that particular thing. But there's something fishy going on here. Because normally you would not, you would not do it in that particular way. There'd be both parties there. There'd be, have to be witnesses there. There'd have to be a particular trial, a proper way to do it. So Jesus is well aware that this is not designed to bring justice. This is designed as a sham court to trap him out. Okay? And that's why it says at the end of it, he just sat there writing on the ground, pretending as if he wasn't hearing what they were saying. So they had done it to try to trap him into a moral dilemma so that it would discredit him in front of these people that were listening. And see, the problem they had with Jesus is that he was ministering to the very people that they had judged and rejected themselves. You see, Jesus is spending time with this type of person. And, and what they had in their mind was he's spending time with these types of people because he is himself like that. Because he is, remember? It says John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking and they said that he's got a, a devil. Jesus came eating and drinking and they said he's a, a wine bibber and a drunkard and he spends time with these people because he just loves spending time with them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 for a moment. Matthew chapter 9. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 12. Now it says there, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat, this is Matthew 9, 10, And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans, people that they were despised by the, by the Jews, okay, and by those leaders, who were who were classified as sinners beyond redemption, and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. And so Jesus was ministering to these people. These people were coming to Jesus. Okay? But the people who were in power, the people who were in control of the religious system that they they were running there, um, had already classified these people as beyond redemption, not worth the time. And in fact, Jesus is spending more time with them than he's spending with these guys. So there's a bit of envy and jealousy there as well. 
if this guy is really the Messiah, if he's really the one, if he's really a prophet or a godly man, he'd be spending more time with who? With me. Because I'm the holy one. I'm the one who follows all the rules and regulations. Why is he spending time with people that we've rejected, that we know they're sinners? And so in this particular case, they've done this thing for a purpose. There is a political reason behind it. It was not for justice. This was done, this spectacle was done to condemn Jesus as a lawbreaker himself. And so it says in verse 6, This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. There was a reason for it. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So before we look at this particular passage today, I'd like to just give you a bit of a recap as to where we are in this particular series and what we've looked at so far. So, so far we have seen the dangers of judging wrongly or unrighteously. We are to be very careful when we judge and we, are, we have to be careful of judging hypocritically, which means we engage in sin as well when we're judging other people who sin. We have to be careful that we are not judging harshly because God doesn't deal harshly with us. God is, in fact, very patient and, patient and gracious with us. We are not to judge rashly, which means judge before we hear all the details. In other words, don't judge someone on the testimony of one other person without hearing the other side of the story. We are not to judge unrighteously, which means judging by our flesh and not according to God's standard. We have not been called to be the judges in this world, to condemn people in this world. We are called, first of all, to judge ourselves. That's, the, that's where we, our judgment is meant to begin, like when we examine ourselves and we celebrate the Lord's table. And we are here not to judge mankind, but to call all men to repentance, to believe in God and believe on Jesus for salvation. If we receive, genuinely receive salvation, then we should be the least judgmental people on this planet. Because we were not judged. In fact, God judged his own son instead of us. Now, we have not been called to be the judges in this world, for there is one judge and Lord of all, and the scriptures tell us that he judges those who are out. We are called to judge ourselves. We are simply the ambassadors of God in this world. Last week, we looked at the divisions of the church in Corinth. And Corinth, if you, if you read those two letters to the Corinthians, there are some serious issues in that church. There were divisions in the church, and the result of those divisions, the result of that infighting that was happening in that church was the result of carnal thinking. In other words, their thinking and their judgments were not coming from the scriptures or not coming from a sense of righteousness, but coming from their own fallen nature. They judged unrighteously, which led to conflicts among themselves. And we looked at the example of the Israelites judging unrighteously too. Remember, they had been saved from Egypt. They had been saved from slavery. They're on their way to the promised land. But while they're in the middle of the wilderness, they're thinking to themselves, oh, I wish I had some onions and garlic and cucumbers that I had back in Egypt. I want to go back there. And we said, well, that's foolishness, isn't it? You want to go back to slavery just to have some onions and garlic? So they judged unrighteously and they rebelled against Moses. 
We looked at the fact that our own society is filled with unrighteous judgment. In fact, every person in this world judges unrighteously because they judge according to the flesh. And the, the judgment that occurs in our society has been amplified and magnified by things such as social media, where people judge each other on a word that they say wrong. And then they condemn each other and write each other off. The result is a lot of mental illness and many more suicides than should be there. We've seen recently, for those of you who have been living under a rock, um, this particular unsavoury situation with the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. You've all heard about this, I'm assuming. And so there's a situation where Essendon, the football club at Essendon, they appoint a new CEO who was the CEO of, I think, NAB, this fellow. Okay, so he's not, he's, he comes fairly highly credentialed. And then within a day, he's gone. Why? Because they found the church that he belonged to, that he was sitting on the board of, um, had registered a sermon or recorded a sermon, much like we do on YouTube. And in that, in that sermon, the pastor had um, called homosexual acts a sin and had said that abortion was a sin as well. And because of that, and because the Essendon Football Club say they are all-inclusive, he was no longer included. Um, and interesting to see how many people wade into that particular thing because as soon as they found out that he was he belonged to this church, which, mind you, is the Anglican Church. Church on the Hill is an Anglican church. So this is the, the, the church that has been in this country from its very inception, okay, being called extreme and views that are called outrageous. Um, it's just an extraordinary situation. And even our own state premier thought he'd jump into the uh, situation as well because he's a bit of an eminent theologian as far as I know. And he called the views of homosexual acts, or, uh, the biblical view of, ho of, of homosexual acts and abortion as sin, as absolutely appalling. Absolutely appalling. Um, and so he too was uh, of the opinion that this fellow should not be sitting on the board of Essendon because he was associated with this church who taught such things. Last time I checked, Daniel Andrews actually belongs to the Catholic Church. Who teaches the very same thing? So by his own thing, he actually should resign as the Premier of the state because he is associated with a church that teaches exactly the same thing. So, okay, so I, I'm not here to, to bash Daniel Andrews. No, that's not my intent. Um, but these views about Christianity's, uh, Christianity's teachings about abortion or about homosexuality and those sorts of things are now being described in our culture as appalling, extreme, and all these, all these interesting words that have never been used before. Um, but they come from a position of judging carnally, which means they're not judging righteously, they're judging carnally. And when I say judging carnally, what I'm saying is they're judging according to their own standard, what they've come up with. And so unrighteousness comes from judging by whatever you think is right and not judging by God's standard. What's interesting is they, they, they get all in a half, right? 
about homosexuality or the homosexual acts being judged as a sin or being called a sin. But who determines what's a sin? Last time I heard we were in a, in a free society, but it's God who determines what is sin and what is not. To actually say that that should not be called a sin is saying that they're actually more qualified than God himself to determine. He's the one who determines what sin is. Their arguments against uh, Christian beliefs at this particular time actually stem from an ignorant view because they believe and they assume that when Christians say that homosexuality is a sin, that we have to hate homosexuality, homosexuals. Or that if we, disagree, if we say that abortion is wrong or is a sin, then we have to hate everyone who disagrees with us or, is, or has done that particular thing. But we found out in our, our scripture reading and in previous sermons that we have not been called to hate anyone. In fact, we can disagree with someone on, on very major issues without condemning them, like the Pharisees had condemned the publicans and the sinners. You can um, have a contrasting view to someone without making your enemy. In fact, this Christian teaching is that we should not make anyone our enemies. In fact, the Bible says that we are to love those who call themselves our enemies and to do good to them, to pray for them. But according to this world and the arguments that you're going to hear and hear over and over again is that if you disagree with them on these things, we must be hateful. What's interesting about this whole thing is they they point out certain sins that we disagree with, right? But last time I checked, the Bible says that all sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is a sin. Well, that means we have to hate at least 90% of the people in Australia who are engaged in activities outside of marriage and do you remember Jesus even said, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed sin within his heart. Well, Jesus must have hated everyone. Which means we have to hate everyone. You see, there's not one person in this world that has actually kept God's law. In fact, if you look at the two laws that encompass all the laws, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul and strength. Let me... Hands up who's kept that one perfectly. So you're all lawbreakers. And what about the second part of it? Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Who's done that perfectly? You mean you're all lawbreakers again? Well, I hate you. <laughs> Do you see how, how, nons how nonsensical the argument is? We are not called to judge. We are not called to condemn people. We're calling them to repentance. I might disagree with you on something, but I want the absolute best for you. I don't care if you're a devil worshipper. I don't care if you think you've sold your soul to Satan. I want you to come and meet the Saviour who saved me. I want you to have what I have. I want you to understand what genuine love and grace is. Because without him, there is no hope. The message we have 
is we're reaching a fallen world of which we were part before. We ourselves are in the same place as them until God shone his light into our lives and we were saved. And we're simply trying to reach them with the same message. We are called to love our enemies. For if we only love those who love us, we're no better than anyone else, are we? And we fall short of God's perfect standard. For the scriptures teach that God didn't abandon us when we were sinners. When we were rebellious and we hated him and were running away from him, the Bible says that God did not abandon us. And it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not stop loving us while we rejected him, while we sinned even more. No, God's love persisted. And that's what love does. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It does not fail. And we have, be, we have been called to display and demonstrate that type of love. I'm not calling anyone to hate Daniel Andrews or anyone else. In fact, if you do, you've completely misunderstood what I've just told you. No. Even for those who consider themselves their enemies, and I'm not even saying he is, and I'm not even saying he considers himself an enemy of Christianity. The Bible says that we have no excuse. In fact, the more people call themselves their enemies, the Bible says that we are called to pray even more for them. We are called to help them even more. We are called to put in more effort because it takes more effort. We are firstly being called to judge that which is right, to judge ourselves first. And in order to judge what is right, we must know what right is, which was part of last week's message. We need to know what is right and then how to do the right because there are two different things. You can actually know right, but not know how to do it and never, and never engage in it. The Bible tells us that those who are given much, much is expected. How much have we been given? There is a lot that is expected of us then. We need to know what is right. That means we genuinely need to know what love is. We've experienced the love of God and we've been called to love others the same way. We've been called to forgive others because we have been forgiven much. We've been called to show mercy to others because we have been shown much mercy. We've been called to be patient with others because we have been given much patience. We are called to be kind. We are called to show grace. We are called to hospitality. We are called to all the things that God continues to give us even though we fail him. We are called to genuinely care, to genuinely follow our saviour. In contrast to these things are the marks of the devil. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Because the Bible tells us not to meditate on things that are evil, not to think about things that are bad all the time. In fact, the Bible tells us in order for us to do good, we need to know what good is. And so we are called to meditate on certain things. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, 
Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What's our minds filled with today? 90% of the things that we read and we see and we hear are all about sin and conflict. But the Bible tells us we are to fill our thinking with good things. We are to meditate on the things of God. We are to understand his ways. We are to think about what is lovely, what is pure, what is of good report. Good report. Have you heard a good report lately? We'll look for the good reports. You see, because we're so easily drawn to the bad reports. It's so easy to get um, to be distracted by the headlines. But look for the good, because there's not enough of it in this world. So we are called to reflect on whatever's good. And if there's any praise, we had to give it. And we've been called to judge in a similar fashion. According to those things. Jesus says in John 5.30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So our, our goal in judging is not to, to seek our own will, but to follow the Lord and follow his instructions. And you can't do that without the word of God, which our society is cutting itself from off more and more. And the churches have abandoned the word of God as well to a great extent and it's, and it's accelerating. So we expect that if the church is no longer tethered, tied to the Bible, then the churches are going to drift off into the moral relativism that our society is already in. And it's not going to be a light to society. It's going to be dragged along with this current that we're experiencing, which is dragging it away further and further from God and more and more towards carnal thinking. If the light that we have been called to be goes out, then this world is much worse off. The first things we are called to judge The thing that is most important to judge is about this man called Jesus Christ. That is the first judgment that a person needs to make in their life to determine who he is, what he has done. That is the most important judgment you will ever make in your entire life because he calls himself the immortal one, the eternal one, the maker of all things. And if he indeed has come down from heaven to teach mankind who God is and what he, what he requires of us, then we are to judge on that matter. You see, he calls himself the, the almighty son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that is the rightful heir of the throne of King David, in fact, the rightful ruler of all things. For this man being the fulfillment of the promises of God, came into the world to rescue this hell-bound world that we live in, this fallen world. He was the promised Messiah to his people, the Jews. He was testified by his teachings and his miracles. And the Bible says, even though he was all those things, 
He came to his own and his, even his own received him not. So I want you to think about the spirit of, the, of that led those Pharisees to bring that woman into the middle of a preaching session and what, where that spirit came from. That they would drag that woman and use her as an example and be ready to throw her life away to prove a point. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 16, because I want to show you the same spirit that was present in the hearts of those men. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. So we're at Matthew chapter 16. Jesus already performed many miracles. Jesus has fed people with a few loaves and fishes. Jesus healed people that are sick and lame and lepers. And then it says in Matthew 16, 1, it says, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees. Mind you, this is the Liberal Party and the Labour Party of their day. Okay? Seriously, this is who they were. These are the political rulers, but they were religious as well. So we have the, the Labour and Liberal getting together to get rid of Jesus. It says the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the sign of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. The same spirit that dragged that woman into that thing is the same, same spirit that led them to say, show us a sign in heaven. If you're the real Messiah... Show us, do something for us. You know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had the Lord of life in front of their eyes, the Messiah, the Son of Glory, the Son of God. They had been incredulous of his identity. And he, here they are, and they're saying, Well, show us a sign now. We want to see something. We want to see something in the in the heavens. Do a magic show for us. We want to be entertained. Obviously, they couldn't accept the other miracles that he'd done. They couldn't accept any of the other testimonies of people that had been cured. It wasn't good enough for them. But isn't the same spirit that exists today? Have you ever heard, oh, if he writes my name up in the sky, I might believe him. If I see a miracle, then I'll believe him. If he does something for me, then I'll believe him. I'll only believe it if I see it with my own eyes. This is the same spirit that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. There was plenty of evidence available for them then, and there's plenty of evidence available for people today. There are written testimonies of plenty of people who have experienced Christ in their life, and there's a testimony which is called the Bible, which they will not bother to look at, lest their thinking might be changed. You see, the signs of the times is the same today. Now, people become very good at judging. He goes, you hypocrites. He goes, you can judge 
what the next day is going to be like from the from the the way the sun sets at night and you know what type of weather the day is going to be in the day because you see something happening in the morning you're very good at judging the weather and people today are very good at judging a whole range of things there are people who are very good at judging a, a, a range of things such as you know they might be good at the stock market or, or, or good at finding friends or, or good at their work or good at estimating this or at estimating that they may be good at a thousand different things but they're still not very good at judging those things which are most important and what's most important is is there a god and if there is a god What's my standing before that God? What does that God require of me? For those of us who have judged on this matter, on Jesus Christ, his identity and what he did, um, we've seen a light that we can't explain to other people. I'm not sure if you had ever trouble explaining your faith to other people. I'm not sure if you've ever had that, that problem explaining who Jesus is to you. Because how do you explain a relationship you have with someone? How do you explain being forgiven all of your sins and knowing that you're going to heaven? How do you explain that to people who don't have it? But for those of us who have, our lives have been changed forever. We know that. We'll never be the same. Our thinking will never be the same. It's changed in ways that we could never have comprehended before. And it's still changing. God's still opening up our eyes to those things. The Bible describes this type of change. Actually, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Because it says, this is what we have judged. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus to save you and grant you eternal life, this is what you have judged. 2 Corinthians 5.14 It says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, that's our motivating factor, because we thus judge, okay, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live, which live should no, should henceforth live, not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. There's our first judgment. The first judgment is we found out that he died for everyone. Why did he die for the world? Because we were all dead in sins. All dead. Dead and, and soon to be twice fold dead. Once you were thrown into hell. And so he died for all. And that was became our judgment. And our judgment then becomes, well, if he's died for me, he's died for the entire world because we were all dead and there's now given us life in him. I should no longer live for myself. I should now live for him. And that makes perfect sense. That is a righteous judgment and a good judgment. Judgment's most important work is to first come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and Saviour and then how to respond to that, respond to who he is because in his death we see his love and we've been called to respond to that love in a proper way. But it doesn't finish there because look at the next two verses. 
Not only does it affect our relationship with God now, because he has now granted us a new relationship with God, but it affects our relationship with other people. Because verse 16 and 17 then says, Wherefore, so okay, from this point, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So what's it saying there? It's saying, well, now I see not only God differently, I see all men differently. I do not regard them the same way I regarded them before. I don't judge them. I don't see them from my fleshly point of view. I see them from now God's point of view. I see them as lost sinners, as I was. And I want to reach them to have what I have. I want to reach them with the love of God that has changed my life forever. So there's, there's two, a twofold change that happens in our life. And it comes from judging rightly. Because I've judged who he is. I've made that judgment. And I've responded to that judgment. Because I was the one under the condemnation and he took it for me. The Pharisees failed in their rash judgment of this woman whose life they regarded as worthless simply to be used as a pawn to try to get rid of Jesus. You see, they were neither, they were not, they had no relationship with God and they had no relationship with man from that point of view. They judged carnally. They judged her with their flesh, which is filled with hatred and envy. So turn back to John 8, 7. And we'll see how Jesus responds. So when they continued asking him, in other words, he wouldn't give them an answer, but they kept on pushing him. He lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. So here we have this woman standing there, still in the middle of all these people that were, were sitting to listen. They'd seen this whole thing take place. But notice these men were convicted by their own conscience. They realised none of them were sinless. Jesus had turned the tables on them with one sentence. They were in front of a crowd. They wanted an audience in order to trap Jesus, but now they were stuck in the middle of a trap themselves because the first one to throw a stone was declaring that they were sinless in front of God. I'm going to drop it. And they had to leave one by one until they all left. And here is this woman standing in the middle of all these people with Jesus in front of her. And in verse 10, it says, When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. All her accusers had left. He said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? 
Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. There was no one left to condemn her because they were all guilty of sin. But this teaches us one very important lesson, that our job is not to condemn other people. Our job is to lead them to him where they will find forgiveness. Where God peradventure per may it grant them repentance and they might find life and forgiveness in him. Let me ask you a question. What's worse? For those men who dragged that woman in, in front of Jesus and said, well, this is a sinner. She's not worth, it's not worth for her to live. So they can prove a point. And if they cast a stone at her to put her to death and end her life. Which is worse? That if we look at someone and we say, you disagree with me, so I'm not going to share the gospel with you. Which is the worst? That we won't go out of our way to share the love of God with someone who we have cut off. Deeming them not worth it. That their life, and not only their life, but their eternity is not worth. Do you see how easy it is to fall into the trap the Pharisees and Sadducees were in? What is the value of a human soul? If we condemn our enemies or sinners, you need to understand that they are condemned to an eternity in hell. Are we better than anyone else? We're only here by the grace of God. And so we should judge righteously. But listen to the words of our Saviour who clearly told the woman that she had been shown mercy and not to sin again. You see, the sin was still wrong. He didn't say to her, I don't condemn you, just go along your merry way and do what you like. He said to her, I'm not going to condemn you, but stop it. You need to stop it. The sin was wrong and he did it never excused the actual sin. But he gave room for repentance. Look at verses 12 to 19 as we close up. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came, that's where I came from, and whither I go. But you cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. They didn't know that he was from heaven and heading to a cross to pay for the sins of the world and then back to heaven. He says, Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. 
It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of my I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. They said uh, then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye know, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was the revelation, the manifestation of God in this world. If you know Christ this morning, you know the Father. If you have met Jesus, you have met the Father. If you have been saved by Jesus, you are now in the arms of the Father. We've been called, if you are saved this morning, to see this world through the eyes of Jesus. Not the eyes of Pharisees or Sadducees or any political party or anyone else. For we are his ambassadors to this world. We need to keep our eyes single, focused on those things which please him. Not to do our own will, but to do his. We are not called to judge, to judge after the flesh, but in righteousness. You know, we will also bear witness of Jesus as the Lord and Saviour of all men. And our job is to seek to draw him, them to him in order that they might be saved. If we follow Jesus, we will be merciful as he was merciful, forgiving and patient, just as God has been with us. Jesus says here, but the Father bore witness of him. In fact, he did it more than once. When he was baptized, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. What's your testimony today? What's your testimony? This is my beloved saviour who saved my soul from an eternity in hell. Please listen to him. I pray that that's your testimony today. If you haven't met Jesus, if you don't know his love and his grace, if you haven't received eternal life as a gift this morning, then I'm calling you to make a righteous judgment today. Judge on that matter because it will affect the rest of your eternity. God bless you all. Thank you.